Hello and welcome to the China Research Group weekly podcast. I'm Julia Pamely. And I'm Chris Cash. Every week we will be bringing you insight from experts and fresh analysis on the stories driving the UK's relationship with China and China's relationship with the world. So for this episode of the Talks on China podcast, we are grateful to be joined by Carl Minzner. Carl is a professor of law at Fordham University and senior fellow for China studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, with his expertise lying in Chinese law and governance. Carl is also the author of End of an Era, How China's Authoritarian Revival is Undermining Its Rise, in which he boldly argues that China's reform era is ending and outlines the looming risk of instability while examining how China under Xi Jinping fits into rising populist and authoritarian trends worldwide. On today's podcast, we intend to chat with Carl about the political ramifications resulting from the escalating disruption of daily life from Xi Jinping's stringent zero COVID policy and a range of other things. Carl, it's great to have you on the podcast today. Um, I know Julia is a massive fan of your book. Could we uh, maybe begin with a, a fairly basic question? What is the zero COVID strategy and how have we seen it implemented in China? Sure. So China's zero COVID strategy is, is basically, it's akin, it's not completely dissimilar to what you see in, uh, seen in other countries like uh, Taiwan or, um, or New Zealand, which is the aim is to reduce and eliminate the virus uh, from, from society. So instead of the policies that some countries took on very early, the idea that we can't stop the virus from spreading, uh, China uh, decided we were going to crush it and we're going to prevent it from, uh, so from, from spreading. And so that has involved uh, uh, widespread testing, uh, uh, isolation of close contacts, isolation of infect infected individuals. And it's been extremely successful over two years uh, up until this most recent outbreak uh, in terms of allowing 1.4 billion people in China to have a relatively normal uh, existence. Uh, so everything that the rest of the world has been familiar with in terms of uh, you know, you know, I sit in the United States. You know, one million deaths from COVID. That hasn't happened in China, uh, and so that's the core of the zero COVID policy. And you mentioned it was extremely successful. It was extremely successful policy previously, um, but but now Xi Jinping seems uh, to remain wedded to this pursuit of zero COVID when the rest of the world um, is reopening and, and learning to live with the virus. Uh, and we're seeing at the moment that this has massive economic costs. Uh, I think there was new data this, this week, which revealed that retail sales were down sort of 11% year on year. Industrial production has also dropped. We're seeing also the sort of social political costs. So, you know, risks of potentially alienating a population that, that relies on this social contract with the, the, the CCP. So, so why do you think she remains wedded to this strategy while, while the rest of the world changes course. Right. So I think one thing to realize is that, you know, this is, and this is not solely about China, but the Omicron variant itself poses a very different challenge to all of the societies that have previously pursued uh, zero COVID policies, because now you're faced with a much more infectious uh, variant that spreads much more easily. Uh, and so a whole range of uh, Australia, New Zealand, uh, countries that have sort of managed to control COVID uh, extensively through border closures, through very intensive lockdowns. They, many of them, and of course, what's happened in many of these other societies is you now have successful vaccination campaigns. And so governments are making the choice, we're going to back off of our earlier policies precisely because we want to have the benefits of not having to have lockdowns and beginning to have open borders. And so Taiwan, for example, is now moving 
opening up. It's having a big spike in cases, but authorities there have made the decision, we're now going to move forward uh, in sort of consistent with what's happening in the rest of the world. China's gone in a different direction. China has to date said, we're, we're sticking to our zero COVID policies under no conditions, we will, we will we permit this to spread. And so particularly in Shanghai, but in a wide range of other areas, you've had extremely tough lockdowns, uh, you know, people being confined, entire residential complexes being uh, shut down, deliveries of food supplies being interrupted in a city of 26 million. And that's begun to impose a really serious costs. Previously, you'd have isolated lockdowns. Now you're starting to have huge swaths of the country that have to be shut down in order to stop the spread. The second part of your question is, why is Xi Jinping doing this? Why can't he just change course? It's harder than you'd think. You've got a couple of things going on. So first, um, Chinese elderly, older popula elderly population in China, vaccination rates low. And so they do face a problem. If this spreads, they, like other societies which have low vaccination rates, will start to see increasing deaths from, uh, from COVID. And so that has actually happened in a number of uh, old age uh, homes in, uh, in Shanghai. So that's a real concern on the part of Chinese authorities. However, even more importantly, uh, this is no longer a public health issue in China. This is a political issue. In 2020, the first outbreak went through, Xi Jinping made this his political brand. He declared victory over the coronavirus in uh, September 2020, big, big victory uh, celebration in the Great Hall of the People in Beijing. And in the last two years, it's become a major point. Like we in China, we the Communist Party have uh, led China successfully uh, to uh, avoid all the horrors that have Europe, Britain, uh, United States, the rest of the world, India have, have encountered. And so he himself has tightly linked his own political, personal political fortunes to the zero, the zero policies. And he's up for, in 2000, fall of 2020, he's up for continuing on in the role as China's top leader, potentially into the indefinite future, because the party Congress will presumably allow him to continue as a general party secretary, military head, president, you know, going forward for at least another five years, potentially longer. And so backing off from those zero COVID policies right now, it's, it's akin to sort of acknowledging defeat. And that is a political problem in China. And so he has made it utterly clear there will be no retreat from zero COVID. This is the orders. These are the orders that have gone down. And if you're trying to understand the intensity of what's happening in Shanghai and elsewhere and the economic harm that China is inflicting, this is it's politics. Uh, it's not just public health. It's also politics that are the core of this. Thank you for, for that explanation. I guess from a political angle, that the picture you've portrayed is a kind of, of a one-man authoritarian state. If Xi Jinping has decided this is the party he wants to set, we now have tens of thousands of, of CCP officials who are implementing his um, sort of zero COVID ambition. But that seems a sign of oversimplification. So is it really the case? I mean, how is the decision-making working on zero COVID? Is it really the case that one, one man is setting the kind of broad direction and local officials are then endeavoring to meet it as strictly as they can. So we've seen stories about local officials being measured on the number of COVID cases, or is there actually mass agreement across the CCP? We've also seen a bit of sort of factionalism or rumors of factionalism. I mean, politically, one of the reasons that, that we invited you was your kind of previous work on how the CCP has changed in the past decade. Um, 
And is this actually just the manifestation of what you've been warning about for, for a decade of, of what happens when we do see centralization of power? Or is that too, too simplistic a take? No, I'd say that's a really good question. And part of the answer is we're not totally sure because I mean, China is kind of a black box political system. So a lot of what we were, when we're thinking about what's going on, a lot of us are trying to, from the outside, we're looking and we're trying to see the smoke signals that are going up. Here's what's happening. What's actually going on inside becomes a lot harder. So by way of answering that, let me say I'll flip back 15 or 20 years. I mean, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, China, although it was a one party system, it was um, it was it was not the, the China of the Maoist era 15 or 20 years ago. You had a, a diversity of opinion. You had channels by which different voices would feed into the system. Power was not concentrated solely in the hands of a single individual. The party conferences that would take place, you could have outside experts. You could have outside voices. You could have a limited amount of, you could have a certain amount of debate. And of course, once the policy had been determined with respect to economic uh, or you know, some other foreign policy, a decision would be made, and then the system would have to begin moving in that direction, but there would at least be a certain level of internal discussion. What's happened in the last 10 years is that the system has steadily closed up. Uh, and as you mentioned, that's consistent with power recentralizing around the hands in the hands of a single person. Um, and you know, you can think a little bit about Russia, you can think about trends that happen elsewhere. And China, I don't think, is quite where Russia is, but the trajectory where Increasingly, there's one person who's relatively more isolated, who doesn't listen to as many people, and other people become increasingly wary of bringing bad news back up to the person at the top. That is definitely the trajectory that's happening in China. Um, it's also, you know, if you're thinking more broadly, it's also this is the point in the political evolution in China or elsewhere where the system becomes more. You know, the particular whims or interests of a particular leader. If you're trying to understand China's mass investment in soccer, you can't, it, that's Xi Jinping having taken a real interest in physical education and soccer, and that starts to steer the system with people beginning to look towards the top leader to figure out how do we, you know, fulfill his wishes and make ourselves look good because we want to be up for promotion to the next, next stage. With respect to COVID, there are different I mean, there are people over the last two years, how do we address it? How do we deal with it? There is that kind of discussion going on. And again, for the last year and a half, for the first year and a half, two years, COVID zero was a success. So in some ways, it isn't, that wasn't just Xi Jinping. That was a lot of people being like, look, we can control it like Taiwan, like Australia through good measures. What's happened increasingly over the last eight months is you have had people begin to voice those concerns about, well, wait a minute, if we keep doing this, even in the face of Omicron, there's going to be huge economic costs. But uh, it's there was a Politburo Standing Committee meeting, even after the, the, the Shanghai lockdown uh, started about six weeks ago. Uh, and you, you heard these voices about, well, can we loosen up? Can we do? About two weeks ago, I believe, you know, the Politburo Standing Committee said, no, zero COVID is here to stay. We will run with it. And so that really is, you mentioned, different voices that does exist so the limited limited degree within the system but that meeting was Xi Jinping through the Politburo Standing Committee saying this is what we will do and you will enforce it and that starts to set the tone and that begins to make it incredibly difficult to begin to deviate from those policies uh, and so that's you know the question of many people will ask me well how how is it possible for China to now impose such economic costs on itself and it is because I think there are politics and there is 
the direction has been set by its by the top official, and it's we're waiting to see how does that evolve if that's the new trajectory going forward, at least through the fall, maybe longer. And just sort of lastly on zero COVID before we start to to look forward a little bit, as you mentioned, we, you, you know the political system is often a, a black box, but we do sometimes get some um, insight into the sort of public mood, and and we've seen pockets of social unrest recently in China that listeners may have read about or even seen this Voices of April video, this sort of viral video that was charged with raw frustration and agony around the, the COVID situation in Shanghai, specifically the, the lockdowns there. So, so I was just sort of wondering, has this frustration been directed at Xi? And how has the CCP gone about managing this? I remember at the, the, the initial outbreak of COVID around you know, the beginning of 2020, when the, the, the doctor, Li Wenliang, tragically died, a lot of people predicted predicted that this would be China's Chernobyl moment. But um, the, I think the government managed to sort of funnel, funnel the blame towards local government. Is that what we're sort of seeing now? And has this discontent really been only confined to sort of a couple of major cities? I mean, that's a good question. And part of it is, you know, we're not entirely sure. I do think, you know, Shanghai is a much more connected city or having, you know, Many more folks, uh, familiar uh, English speakers, uh, tech capabilities, lots of expats there. So information, I think, flows out of China. But some of those border towns along the, you know, along Russia, they've also been subjected to very severe lockdowns. But it's smaller towns you don't hear as much. So I think, you know, there is this question of exactly what's going on. Um, Chinese authorities themselves, they don't, they don't want mass riots. I mean, that's something that there was. So you know that that pushback in Shanghai does produce something. Uh, it does produce concerns on the part of party authorities, uh, and even more importantly, I think the economic harm, the fear of like, what do we do if there's uh, if there's you know mass unemployment, uh, Chinese economy seizes up for like months going forward. Those are the types of first order issues that are being grappled grappled with. Uh, and I, honestly, you're asking me like, how far could this go? Will will would they just decide to reverse their policies? of you know incredibly huge ramifications and i have to say at this moment i just don't know i mean you have a top leader who is intent on steering the the, the the country in a particular direction and for me i have to start looking back to things like the great leap forward in the late 1950s where mao steered the country into sort of a disastrous famine with huge implications for millions of deaths of, of chinese citizens the politics just pushed in that direction and the costs were imposed. And eventually, you know, they shifted. But I, I just don't know in China today how far that goes and you know how this how the situation plays out. I mean, as you said, it's you know the tr the tricky part game of trying to work out what's going on in the black box um, and, and getting smoke signals. And what I always find really fascinating from people who've been watching China for a number of decades is what are the what are the resources you know access to china right now is is borderline impossible so what are the resources that you use in order to track these kind of shifts in in centralization of power what what are the kind of ways that that the people like you today are trying to understand what's going on we are kind of going back to um, you guys are you're a younger generation but kremlinology you know the type of thing Back in the day, you know, when you people were, people were trying to figure out what's going on in the Soviet Union in the 1960s or 70s, and you know, you're you're looking at statements that the government authorities themselves or the party does speak, and you know, they have these voices, so they issue things, and you can look at the, the tone and the language of a government statement and policy, and you can see how it shifts. You're you're trying to you know look 
at the sources, you know, China is closed, but it's not totally closed. So you have journalists, you have people who will say things and you triangulate that with the government statements to try to figure out what's going on. You know, there is the uh, this whole game of like trying to see, you know, who's appearing on television and what what has happened. There are errors that you make when you look at that. I mean, it's just, you know, people never thought Khrushchev would fall. And then so these these things happen. Um, and, uh, and some of it is, is guesswork. So yes, it, it's a very different era from even 15 or 20 years ago where somebody could sort of go into like a local village and be like, I'm gonna conduct a survey. And there, there was better information coming out uh, and, and sorts of sources are drying up, but we're just trying to do the best we can. And you mentioned um, in a previous answer, Carl, the, the, the 20th Party Congress happening later this year, and it almost seems to have been forgotten about in a lot of the discourse because of this um, Omicron outbreak. But it, it's so important to sort of every decision that, that's being made um, at the moment. So could you maybe just summarize the, the, the wider political situation and sort of national mood as we build up to this 20th Party Congress later this year? So what, what do you think the outbreak is having on maybe the, the agenda and sort of sentiment around this landmark event and what should we be looking out for? Right. So it's important. I mean, you can, it's important to sort of the, the big picture for people who aren't familiar with the Chinese political system. It's a one party system. You have regular meetings every year. And then every five years, you have these sort of large party congresses. And these are the opportunities for, uh, these are the, the, the points where the top leadership uh, changes. The people who are in the Politburo Standing Committee, you'll sort of, people will will step down, new people will come in. But even further down in the bureaucracy, the, the top authorities will you know, figure out who the next people they want to uh, run particular provinces. And there's huge political games because it's also individuals who are figuring out who the folks who they think will be loyal to them, moving their supporters up, people who you sort of don't trust, maybe you're sidelining those other folks. So that's a regular process that goes on. We're now already about Year, we're 10 years into Xi Jinping's reign. Uh, you know, he came in in 2012. Uh, and we are moving to an era in which, you know, Xi Jinping will be around at least for another five years, perhaps longer. And so core questions start to come in about how many of his people will get to go into which areas. Uh, and, and so some of the game is around that. So for example, people speculate with respect to the Shanghai situation, the, the, uh, the, 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 the Shanghai party secretary, you know, is his, what's going to happen to him? And so, you know, is his position in danger because, you know, he failed to control the outbreak in Shanghai? Now is he over, you know, overreacting precisely because he needs to demonstrate that he's, you know, successfully carrying out policy uh, of, with respect to zero COVID. Those are the types of games that kind of get played within the Chinese political apparatus because people's careers and potentially their lives are also at stake so that's one set of games. The other game is sort of around Xi Jinping himself. We are reasonably sure that what's going to happen at the next party Congress is Xi Jinping continues on as general party secretary, head of the military, president for another five years. But could it go further? Uh, that's kind of the next question. Is Xi Jinping's already established himself as the sort of most powerful Chinese leader and several going back, you know, going back to Deng, maybe Mao, we're, we're debating exactly how you potentially could start to see him getting elevated up further. There are ways in which you, you begin to, you start to give him new positions that begin, you, you begin to say, revive the position of chairman, party chairman, which kind of disappeared under after Mao, 
and you start, maybe you put Xi Jinping into that. Uh, do you start to, you know, raise up his ideological profile so he goes a little bit higher than the party itself? You, you could imagine something like that. And particularly if you're a central leader who's trying to accumulate more power, that might be something you would want to do. And then, of course, in the back of my mind, and I think this is the biggest, is what about everybody else in the party? Is, is there resistance to that? Are there some people saying, well, if we go that far, other errors that occurred to China, Great Leap Forward, Cultural Revolution, could things like that start to coming back? So I kind of have the sense that in the back, these are the deep political games that are being played out in China. And the, 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 what's taking place with respect to COVID is people raising different issues. Now, are they raising it to his face? No, but I mean, I think that when you sort of see like, well, we just did that to the economy over the last eight months, so the last couple of months, what could happen two years down the road, three years? I think those are the types of things that, you know, if you're in those circles in China, people are aware of and thinking, how does that play out? I've got no idea. That's that's on the other side of the castle walls, and I don't know what's going on in there. Thank you. I mean, such an interesting insight into the at least some of what we understand about what's going on within the China political system. But I mean, I guess for the rest of the world and for us here here in the UK, what does that what does that mean if we see you touch on this at the end of the book, which is the reason I ask? Um, what does that mean for? our foreign policy towards China, the UK, the US, the West broadly conceived? I know it's a hard question, a meaty question for the final one. But do we, should we sort of assume a kind of lock-in effect of a move towards single-person authoritarian rule? Or should we leave space open for oh, a potential oh, liberalisation? Well, I mean, I think, I think the key thing is, oh, China's going to be there. I mean, I mean, the hard thing to say is that you know, China internally may be going in a very dark direction going forward. But you know, China is a, as a as an entity. It's going to be there for a long time, and you don't know how it will turn out. Um, you know, in terms of what does it mean for foreign policy with respect to 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 Beijing? Expect the unexpected. I mean, this is where policy can start to veer in in different directions. But but I do think that uh, you know what what worries me in the big picture is that it is easy. I mean, I'm kind of foreseeing a a very long divorce going on between China and, and much of the world, Europe and the United States. Uh, and this, you know, 1950s, 1960s, we experienced this once where the walls came. And it's not, it's not just political trends in the, in the West. It's also, it's also, you know, things in China. China's moving in a different direction. And that can start to lead to the severing, these breaking down of, of ties, even potentially on a, on a personal relationship. And I don't know. I, mean, I, I wish I could come up with a clear, this is what you know, you should do, but there's economics, there's diplomacy, there's a whole range of things that you have to, uh, to, to bear in mind. Um, you never know what could happen to China. There's 1.4 billion people there. The thing that is going to get gradually forgotten, that's a lot of people with hopes, desires, demands, going in all different directions, the crazy nationalist voices, the people who just want a better future for their kids, People who are in, in trying to, I, I wish I could reduce it to something, but trying to keep that in mind too, even as nations and states perceive their, you know, pursue realist interests in terms of uh, power and money. It's just, there, there is also a, a lot of people there who are going to be moving in different directions as situations within their own country change. And I don't know what that means for the future. Sorry, that's not a very good answer. Feel free to hit me with more. 
I think that's all we've got time time for today, unfortunately. Um, Carl, that's been a fascinating um, journey into the world of Chinese domestic politics and sort of beyond. We, we've covered so much ground in a um, short space of time. So, so thank you very much for giving up your time again. Where can we direct followers of the, the China Research Group to, um, to, to track your work and engage with all the brilliant stuff that you're up to? Oh, you're very nice, but I, I mean, I, I uh, Julia was nice enough to sort of mention my book. That sets, sets out whatever my thinking is on China. I sort of think that I got the trends right on that, and that's kind of like you know, I, there, there's some interesting stuff in there if you're interested in that. I'm also on Twitter as well, you know, for whatever that's worth. I don't know if my commentary is correct or accurate, but sometimes at least I, I send around stuff that other people are doing that's really good. Um, and uh, yeah, so. Yeah, and that would be, I'd be more than happy. Or, you know, look me up at the Council on Foreign Relations or, uh, yeah, that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm around in terms of if people want to email me or something. Brilliant. We can we can add links to the podcast notes, um, and I'm sure a lot of people will will try and track you down. But um, Carl Minsniff, thank you very much for uh, appearing on the Talks on China podcast today, and we look forward to chatting again soon. Well, just say thanks so much, Chris. Thank you, Julia. Appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you.